So if we could, let's just dive in this morning. Can I ask you to uh, read with me Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. I think Dave's going to bring it up on the screen for us. Let's try and do this together. Ready? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Will you pray with me as we begin? Father, thank you for the gift that you grant us to come in your presence. We praise you, God, that as we worship on a morning like this, that we know we come before the one true God. And as we speak about you this morning, I do pray that whatever words come from this platform would be your words. And where they stray, Lord God, that your spirit would work in us each to correct them so that we can walk forward in these lives following you exclusively. Please take this time, Lord God, to bless yourself and benefit us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last Sunday we began this short four-week series looking at Isaiah's prophecy and the four names that are associated with Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, Michael set the context and reminded us that although there's four names here mentioned in verse 5, the words, his name, are written in a singular tense. Now, to say it a different way, together these four names frame a comprehensive picture of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to look at the second name, Mighty God. Now, the name used for God in this term, Mighty God, is the Hebrew word El. Now, it signifies either strength or the strong one. There's an adjective that's attached to the word God in Hebrew, Gibor, and that word can also be translated as mighty or strong. So there's a really simple way that we could look at this. You could say Jesus is the strong one who is strong. Kind of a play on words here. In essence, this title for Jesus validates his deity, but it also validates his sovereignty, his strength and power. And all of that is juxtaposed against his humanity. He comes as a child, as a son to be born into this world. So as we begin to look at this name Jesus, I want to ask you to just kind of step back from the prophecy for a second, and let's think about today, our own world, and how we translate our own world into this look forward as a prophecy. Let me make this observation, see if you agree with me. Humanity has come to a place where disregard for God is prevalent. Make sense? I see some nods out there, You, you would agree with that. It's not an exception anymore, is it? It's not even unusual. We hear it so often. This disregard, it influences even the way we see the world ourselves because we're so confronted with it on a day-to-day basis. Let me give you an example. Man is beginning to believe that he can control creation. We've advanced so far, we think we can. Today, governments are intervening in the environment, attempting to change weather patterns. I mean, even impact the rise and fall of tides and the force and the direction of the winds. I mean, these things are all going on around us. Now, I'm not suggesting there's not a need for science, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't advance science, but I am suggesting this. These interventions have an absolute disregard for God's power in creation and his role in sustaining it. This ideology puts man at the center and God on the outside. Let me give you another example. 
Even when it comes to conflicts between nations, the emphasis is always man-centered. In every conflict, one nation desires to have its way over the opposing nation. And to overcome these conflicts, the globalist view of a world led by a single entity is often the solution that's posed to us. You don't have to go any further than the World Health Organization and its influence on the COVID response. It illustrates this idea. Or we can think about something even grander, Davos, not familiar with that, that's the gathering of the world's wealthy elite and the greatest governments on this planet. Oh, by the way, who believe that a new world order is necessary to protect humanity. Now these examples all discount the master creator and replace him with a man-centered political ideology. Now before we get too settled in our little Christian superiority complex that we tend to find ourselves in, would you think with me about the church in America for a moment? Maybe even right here in Middle Tennessee. I want to pose to you that in general, the church has moved with contemporary culture to accept man-centered ideology, and in some cases, with complete disregard for the Word of God. Each of these examples highlights a single idea. Man is wiser and more powerful than God. God's no longer mighty, or worse, there is no need for God. Now, to the contrary, our Bibles emphasize God's might, His power, most often as a central attribute of His character. Some might even say the defining attribute. Let me give you a little rundown here. In the creation record in Genesis 1, by His word alone, everything comes into being. That's God's power defined. In Genesis chapter 17, in the description of the covenant that God makes with Abraham, he identifies himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the powerful one. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, as David passes Israel's leadership to his son Solomon, David credits God as the only true king over everything. Not he or Solomon. The psalmists speak regularly of God's might. One of my favorites is Psalm 115. Here's what the psalmist says there. Our God is in the heavens. Check this out. He does whatever he pleases. Prophets in the Old Testament are no different. We just hear this pattern repeated. When we move to the New Testament, we see the same pattern. I mean, there's a great example that y'all are familiar with, Matthew chapter 19. You don't need to go there. Just follow the storyline for a second. Here's that story where Matthew records a discussion between Jesus and a rich man. And this man wants to be saved. Jesus tells this man to give up everything and follow him. The man's unwilling and goes away. Now that results in a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. The disciples are astonished at Jesus' answer. They even say to him, well then who can be saved if this rich man can't? You know what Jesus' answer is? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That sounds like a mighty God to me. You know, we can look at the 
New Testament in its entirety, and the writers repeat this pattern over and over. Our Bibles end in Revelation with multiple pictures of God's might in the coming of a new earth, a new city of Jerusalem, in the return of Jesus, and the defeat of death and suffering once and forever. Here's the point I want to make with these comments. It's really pretty simple. If we don't first believe that God is God alone and man is not, there's no real need for me to stand here this morning and tell you that Jesus is a mighty God. Do you agree with me on that? Isn't that how we come to the text? Well, if you look in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah, Isaiah reveals that this mighty God will be born into this world as a human being. Now, before we get too far into this, I'd like to share a perspective from Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, if you're not familiar with him, he's best known for his 30 years at Westminster Chapel in London during the mid-1900s. He's considered one of the last century's finest expositors. Now, he comments on the Isaiah chapter 9 text by digressing into the story behind the prophecy. Now, he especially reflects on the idea that this child, this son to be born, is a gift from God to mankind. Here's what he says. A gift tells about the one who gives as well as the one who receives. When Christians consider the greatness of God giving his son, they understand three things. First, they must make much of God and not only Christ. The giver as great as the gift. Now, here in this quote, Lloyd-Jones is referencing that God the Father and God the Son are interwoven and involved in this prophecy. Well, here's the second thing he says. They must be in very great need if they are given so costly a gift. I would, I would suggest with that second statement that too often we don't see just how costly the gift is to us. And Lloyd-Jones causes us to be reminded of that. Here's the third and final thing that he says. Finally, their response must be one of amazement, gratitude, and praise. I just want to ask you this morning, as we consider Jesus and this name, Mighty God, would you see him for who he is? Would you approach him in amazement? Would you bring a heart of gratitude for what he's done in your own life? And would you consider that there is no one more worthy of your praise than him? He must be at the center of our worship. Okay, Isaiah chapter 9, let's continue. Isaiah reveals, as I said, this mighty God's going to be born as a human being. Now, Michael remarked last week that the emphasis is not so much God being a child. Remember when he said that? He said it's, it's, it more reflects the truth that God himself would be present in a physical body. It's God as a human being. Now I want you to think about the people of this day that are hearing this. To the people of Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms, God had no human form. As a matter of fact, he was the one that they were just flat out afraid of. Remember when he appeared at Mount Sinai in such glory that they cowered and they wouldn't even look at the mountain? 
And then Moses, when he came down from the mountain, had this glow about him, the reflection of God. And they didn't even want to look at Moses just because of God's reflection. And then in the wilderness, God required a tabernacle that separated him from their sins. God would only show himself behind a curtain. And only as a pillar of fire or a cloud that followed them. Now in this prophecy, we would estimate that the year Isaiah writes is about 725 B.C., some 725 years before Jesus' birth. Three years after this prophecy, in approximately 722 B.C., the northern kingdom Israel will be devastated by the Assyrian Empire. Loved ones are going to get killed. Families are going to get torn apart. The nation will be destroyed. You see, Isaiah brings this prophecy of promise, this hope in advance of that coming distress. These people will never see the prophecy fulfilled. They'll be long gone. Take a look at the first five verses of chapter 9 with me. They provide some context. Now, Michael also spoke to this last week, but let's just do a quick review. In verse 1 of chapter 9, Isaiah indicates that this child will end the days of gloom, days yet to come. In verse 2, this child will be like a great light to the people to overcome that gloom. That's a light that has not yet come. And in verses 3 through 5, Isaiah emphasizes that he will bring rejoicing and gladness to the people and end their oppression. Well, this is an oppression that has yet to even happen. Think about this prophecy this way. Imagine I was a prophet. Hard to believe. Don't go there. And I was giving you a prophecy. It'd be a little like me telling you that God will overcome the devastation that is coming to the United States in the future without explaining when that was going to happen or what the devastation was. You follow me on how they must react to these words. Now, would you agree that people are going to react differently to something said like that? Some are going to not believe it. Others are going to misunderstand it. Now, you serious Bible scholars, I'm sure you would immediately start to pray for a conservative government that honors the principles of God's word. Go for it. I'm with you. I don't know what it's going to get you. But here's what I do know. This prophecy is more important than temporal issues for anyone back then or now. And this is not the first time that God informs Isaiah of a special child to come. I want to ask you, Flip back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. In verses 10 through 13 in Isaiah chapter 7, God speaks to Ahaz, who is king of Judah. That's the southern kingdom now. Now, at this time, it's a few years prior to the Isaiah 9 prophecy, Judah, Ahaz, is worried that the kings of Damascus and Israel might come and attack them. Here's the great part of the story. God offers to help Ahaz. And he's got an amazing offer. He basically says, ask me whatever you want and I will do it. 
I don't get it. Ahaz declines. I mean, that's a Bible study just for some time in the future. How does somebody say no when God says, ask me and I'll give it to you? Well, in verse 14, after that happens, Isaiah responds to Ahaz with these words. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. God didn't care that Ahaz didn't want help. He's sending it anyway, right? Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. I mean, I can imagine Ahaz sitting there going, you're going to send me a kid? How is that going to help? Well, it would, because this son's name was Emmanuel. And God was given Ahaz a promise, because Emmanuel means God with us, that he himself would be with him. Well, you shouldn't be surprised. Again, Ahaz doesn't listen. Instead, here's what he does. He pays tribute to the Assyrian king for help. Yeah, that's what he does. And you know how he pays for it? He, plunder, he plunders the treasury of the temple and Judah's own treasury so he can pay him. Now we know the rest of this story. If you want to dive into it, it's in 2 Kings chapter 15 and 16. We're not going to do that today. There's a little bit of it in Isaiah chapters 8 and 9. Here's the end of the story. The Assyrian king, on behalf of Ahaz, defeats Damascus. And within a few years of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9, Assyria is going to defeat the northern kingdom Israel. That's what I mentioned just a moment ago. Well, why do these stories matter? What can we take away from them? I think there's two things in this account that are worthy of our attention. The first is the son named Emmanuel is powerful. He is mighty. He can defeat the mightiest kings on the earth. Now here's the second one that's more kind of at our level. Ahaz chose not to trust God when he offered help. Now before we get too critical of Ahaz, doesn't this kind of correlate with you and me? When was the last time, and I don't want you to answer me now, so don't get ahead of yourself. When was the last time that you knew the right thing to do pertaining to God's word? And you did the opposite. I think we can relate to that, huh? You see, trusting God is one of the central ideas God has wanted man to learn since the beginning. And we're still learning. Well, let's go back to chapter 9. I want you to note the detail and the description of the power of this mighty God in verse 7. It's the very next verse. He will bring peace to mankind. He will rule on David's throne. His rulership will be marked by justice and righteousness, or if you choose the word holiness, and it will last forever. It's not going to go away. Now, it's not surprising to me, at least, that Israel was confused when Messiah came 700 years later. They're looking for a king in this son that could defeat any other king on this earth. They wanted a king that was going to bring peace globally. Conflicts were just going to go away. They wanted a replacement for David. How about this? They wanted a world where their God called all the shots in their favor. Sounds like us Americans sometimes. They just got it wrong. 
I want to suggest to you that that too sounds like something we can be guilty of in our lives today. Well, what is it that we're guilty of? Misinterpreting God's word. We live by our opinions, not by what the word of God teaches. Just saying. Well, as I was thinking about these two prophetic accounts, one of the things I was struck with, kind of a rabbit hole for me, I couldn't help but to think of the many ways that Jesus is described in Scripture. He's creator and judge and sovereign and savior. He's described as the word. His power is described as having no limits. Now we know, because we're in the future from where these folks live, we have God's word. We know that Jesus is resurrected. We have the account of the resurrection. We have the ability to believe, so we have a certainty in our faith. But these two accounts, they kind of impact me personally. They remind me of how powerful God has been in my own life. And I want to see if I can connect those dots with you. Now, a lot of you folks know I came to faith when I was about 30 years old. Patty and I both did. It didn't take very long for God to leave a lasting impression of me, of his power. Here's my story. We weren't believers. My closest friend, my best friend, was at the place where I worked. Neither of us were believers. Patty wasn't, I wasn't, my friends weren't. So our relationships were really workplace-based. It wasn't a church. I mean, we didn't get to meet people in church. It was who we spent our time with. Now, this best friend of mine... He was married and had small kids, and our two families spent a great deal of time together. Sadly to say, his marriage ended in divorce while the kids were still young. Now, he eventually married again. And even though by then, that time that he was going to remarry, Patty and I had become believers, he still came to me and asked me to be a best man in his second wedding. I chose to honor the relationship and do it. You can judge me later, whether that was wise or not, but that's not the point of my story. Let me say this, fast forward. They're married now, and God gave Patty and I a burden for them. I mean, we kept bringing the gospel to them, and they didn't break the relationship. Now one day, and there's a day we didn't plan, they came to faith. God made them believe. Man, I'm still amazed about that, how God took that and turned it on its head. But you know, that's not the rest of the story. That's not the end. You see, today, that friend of mine, he's got a son from that second marriage, and he's a teaching pastor in a church in Boston. God doesn't do things the way we do things. It's not always a straight line. I'm amazed by his power. He's a mighty God. Can I say to you, he's done the same thing for you. Don't miss it. It really is important to think about it. All that I've said so far, that's just the backdrop. I want to talk about Jesus' name, mighty God, by answering three questions, and it won't take long. It'll be quick. How does Scripture describe Jesus' might? What purpose is there in God using his might? And third, how does a mighty God's power 
impact me? Let's just jump into that first question, how does Scripture describe Jesus? So this is going to feel a little more like a Bible study this morning. So get your Bibles out. If you've got more of a technology device, I will do my best to confuse you. So let's go from there. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 1. Matthew comments on the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 1. I want you to notice, immediately he introduces an angel who appears in Joseph's dream, announcing that this child will save his people from their sins. Here's what he says. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. This child has a specific purpose in God's plan. He's the sin saver. And he'll be brought into this world as a human child through Mary. We're introduced to another name. He will be given the name Jesus. Now Matthew then adds his own commentary in these verses by declaring that Isaiah's prophecy would be fulfilled through this child. And here yet another name is highlighted. We hear Emmanuel again, again which means God with us. Here's what the text says. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Jesus is the child of Isaiah's two prophecies. He is God, and he will save his people. Now, if you keep moving with me, let's go to John's Gospel. The Apostle John adds more detail regarding Jesus' might in chapter 1 of his gospel in the first four verses. Here, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. Our young people last night on the stage right to my left recited those verses. Brought me to tears in the back as I heard them do that. Why? Jesus was there at the beginning. He and God were creating everything together. Now John also declares that Jesus is the Word of God. There's three truths in these short verses. Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus is Creator. And then at the, in, in verse 4, we're exposed to another truth. In Him was life. The third truth, Jesus is the author of life. Now, I personally think that these three truths are more than enough to make the case that Jesus should be called the strong one who is strong, the mighty God. But John's not done. Look in verse 10. He makes this remark that the world didn't see him. Didn't see him that way, at least. Here's what verse 10 says. He was in the world. That's Jesus in human form. And the world was made through him. That's Jesus, the creator God. And the world did not know him. That's Jesus who was unknown as mighty God until after his resurrection. Now let me take this verse and digress for just a second. Put your hats, your heads back on, thinking about the people in Isaiah's time. How hard would it be for them to accept that another human, human being was going to be God's answer for all the future troubles they would ever experience? I'm going to suggest to you it would be impossible. God had always been that person for them. He had always intervened in those crisis moments. It wasn't a human being. They loved David, but David loved God more. 
This human being would have to be God for that to be true. And let's not forget how unusual that would be, how unbelievable that would be for them. They'd never seen that. God is a human being. And in their lifetime, they wouldn't. It would come after. You know what they could do, though? They could trust Isaiah as one bringing God's truth to them. Let me paint this picture. God brought his word to Isaiah who gave it to them. Whose word was it? God's. It was God's word. You see, to trust God at his word is what's at risk here. And that's something he asked us to do today, to trust him at his word. Well, let's keep going. In verses 12 and 13, John takes the idea even further. He says, some will believe that he's God the Savior and be adopted into God's family, and they'll be children of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. But next in these verses, John uses a negative argument to illustrate God's power. Here's what he says. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, that's a negative argument, nor of the will of the flesh, that's a second negative argument, nor of the will of man, that's a third negative argument. And then in our English translation, we have the most favorite overused word in history, but. Which basically means disregard everything said before it was all wrong, even though I told you it was okay. I think we've all used that word, but. What does John say? None of that's true. It's all of God. A person's adoption has nothing to do with a decision a man makes for himself. It is the will of God alone. This Jesus' strength, the one that we call mighty God, is limitless. He has the very power to give people the right to be children of God. One last comment in this John's Gospel. Look at verse 14. John reaffirms that this child lived as a human in their midst. He says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh, that's his humanity, and dwelt among us, that's his life. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. That's his position with God. And how does he end this? He describes how he lived, full of grace and truth. That's his character. Why is Jesus' name Mighty God? He's the Savior of the world. He's the Creator. He's the Word of God. He's God's glory. You know, here's another question. And why do we want to talk about it at Christmas? You know, He's the only one that can reconcile man back to God. Christmas is our opportunity to be amazed again, to express our gratitude, to praise Him like we never have before. I'm starting to sound like Martin Lloyd-Jones now, huh? Let's get on to question number two. Two and three are pretty quick. Let's see where we go with this. Second question is, what purpose is there in God using his might? I've got a caveat before we proceed. This is just an example. I don't want to suggest that it's comprehensive. I want to illustrate that there is purpose behind everything that God does. That's a principle that's found throughout the storyline of the Bible. God has a plan with one strategy. Many have said there's no plan B for God. 
can I suggest that we understand him best when we realize that he has an explicit purpose in everything that he does in this world. He is not random. He's not like us that way. He's explicit in everything. That single storyline is woven together from Genesis through Revelation. And for me, it reminds me that God is the central figure of his story. It's not man. Think about it this way. It's like, a, it's like this drama that's unfolding. It's a dramatic picture for us from Genesis to Revelation. And God's the centerpiece. He's the star. Man, it's just a bit player. It's about God. Now, I want to try and illustrate this by asking you to look at something that might be unusual. Get to work this morning. Go back in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 16 specifically, but as you're turning there, let me make this comment. In Exodus chapter 9, Moses describes in detail how God worked to release Israel from bondage in Egypt. We know the story, right? Well, on the eighth occasion, what we call the eighth plague, God instructs Moses to declare this statement to Pharaoh. This is verse 16 of Exodus chapter 9. Here's what God says, but indeed, for this cause, now that's a purpose statement, right? For this cause, I've allowed you to remain. Now that's Pharaoh, God's allowing him to remain on the playing field. He didn't take him out of the game yet. Why? In order to show you my power, another purpose statement. But I want you to see the end of the sentence more than anything. It wasn't just so God could show his power so that he could be the cool guy that's above everybody. It is in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Now, obviously, the plagues demonstrated God's power over creation and certainly over the false gods that Egypt worshipped. But we can't miss the purpose behind its acts of power. It is so that his name will be known in all the earth. That's the reason. Now, hold that thought. Go back to the New Testament. Go to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Now, when you're doing that, I want to remind you, God said to Pharaoh, I demonstrate my power to proclaim my name through all the earth. That's what he said to Pharaoh. Let's look at what Jesus says to his disciples. All authority has been given to me. That's his power. I mean, he's got it all. There's no authority that's not within his realm of control. But what's the purpose of his power? You know, the phrase here in these verses is to make disciples of all nations. Why does he show his power to make disciples of all nations? Doesn't that sound like you would need to proclaim his name through all the earth? You see, God always displays his power for one purpose, for his name to be known as the one true God and his son as savior of the world. That is his purpose. Why is Jesus mighty God? Why do we give him that name? He's the exclusive way that God proclaims his name through all the earth. And we who believe are privileged to be his spokespeople. Well, let me give you one last reference on this idea of 
this might that we're unraveling here in this second question. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says there, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. You see, Paul declares that believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, believing in his gospel for salvation, is accomplished one way. His power directly applied to you in your heart, in your body, inside you. He says it's the righteousness of God revealed in you. You see, we experience God's strength personally when we believe. It takes us just the way we are. Oh, by the way, enemies in opposition to Him, lost sinners, and He transforms us by poking that power rod right inside us. It's His limitless strength. He does the work. It's His power. This is the mighty God that is named Jesus. Here's the final question, and this one's a quick one. How does the mighty God's power impact me? As Paul turns over his ministry to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, he speaks of believers receiving God's power. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Here's a big idea. God's power in us didn't stop at the time that we believed. It continues. He wasn't finished with us when we first believed. His power is in us today. I contend we are only able to live in an evil world and overcome it as a result of God's very strength in us. This is a privilege he has blessed us with. And for Paul, he's going to use the Corinthians as an example to prove this principle. One last place to look before you can put your Bibles down. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 and 10. We would all agree that the Corinthians faced a culture full of idols. Deception and evil was all around them. But here in this text, in the verses that precede verses 9 and 10, Paul speaks of his own suffering. He's asked God to remove a thorn in his flesh. And in verses 9 and 10, we have God's answer to Paul and Paul's reaction. Here's what God says to Paul. And he said to me, that is God to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul reacts. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, then, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. How does mighty God's power impact me? His power in me through his son, Jesus Christ, brings a contentment to my spirit that I can't manufacture myself. I can't make it up. I want to ask you to think about that for a minute. See, for me, when I look back at the trials and suffering that have come in my life, and I want to say this carefully, I realize mine are probably far less than for many of you. But when I consider the trials and suffering that have come my way, I realize 
God's strength in me carried me through those times. You see, when I relied on Christ exclusively in a moment like that, I came face to face with God's strength in my life. And so did you. Well, there's a whole lot more that could be said, but we're going to finish now. But just from these things, I want to give you what came to me as three takeaways. I hope they're worth remembering when you think about Jesus' name as Mighty God. First, our Mighty God demonstrates His power and strength so that mankind will know that He alone is God. There's purpose in God demonstrating His power. It's not random. He just has one plan. And as believers, we're blessed to be in the plan that way. We're integrated into it for an eternity. Here's the second thing. Our mighty God's strength transformed every one of us who believe. It was His strength that did it. And we know it firsthand. I'm just asking you to be amazed about that. It's magical if I'm allowed to use that word. Probably not, but I did. Can I say the master of the universe and his son, Jesus Christ, unleashed their limitless power in you. You have experienced Jesus, the mighty God, firsthand. And man, what, what better time to celebrate it than Christmas? Here's the third thing. Our mighty God gives me and you contentment and peace that I can't manufacture without him. You know, Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, that's that contentment and peace, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, that's the stuff I can't manufacture. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus Christ, the one we call mighty God, He's the one that guards us. You know what? We only win because of His power. I just want to offer to you this morning, this Christmas, be amazed. Be amazed at what He did to draw you to Himself. What He's doing in your life today. And what He has yet planned for your journey. This is a great opportunity to express your gratitude for Christ and to bring him your worship. Isaiah declares, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Amen.